All right, good morning. It is a wonderful day. It's good to see you guys here. It looks like I got some phone calls to make this week, though, huh? We've got some absent. Some are skipping today. I'll catch them. Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start there this morning. But as you turn there, I want to give you a little introduction to somebody. There was a very influential evangelist uh, named George Whitfield. And he was part of the first great awakening. And he exemplified Paul's idea of making the name of Christ so much larger, so much bigger than his. Whitfield decided to hand the reins of leadership over. He was part of the Methodist movement. He decided to hand his reins of leadership over to a man named John Wesley. Now, the problem here was that there was a danger of the Methodist movement, right, this church movement, this great awakening, being divided over allegiance between himself, Whitfield, and Wesley. People were following both, and division started to happen. And so when he handed over the reins, the followers of Whitfield said they warned him that his name would be forgotten because of what he had done. And Whitfield replied by declaring, my name let the name of Whitfield perish if only the name of Christ be glorified. See, the passion of this faithful Christian minister was to make a lot, make much of, make bigger the name of Christ. And I guarantee one of his models for doing this had to be John the Baptist because John the Baptist was content to let his name and his influence decrease as well. In fact, his joy was completely bound up with the increasing fame of Jesus. This morning's message is going to present Paul in a bit of a quandary. But he is also struggling with his desire to increase Christ, to magnify him in his life or in his death. So today i got to ask two simple questions. <clears throat> Are you magnifying our Savior and Lord? Are you a lens <clears throat> that allows others, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> that allows others to see Jesus magnified in your life. So you may be able to answer these questions right now, and God bless you. But some of you may be like, well, i got to think about this. Well, I want you to take this time, but please listen. Please listen if this is the case to this morning's uh, presentation of God's message. And let's revisit these questions at the end, because they're very strong questions that we have to be real about and answering. So if everybody's in Philippians 1, I'd like to start in verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage <clears throat> now, excuse me, I'm so sorry, uh, with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory 
in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, but in him, excuse me, believe in him, but also suffering for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. I apologize about the reading. I have these progressive lenses. And if you move just an animator, it's a different, totally different view. So I've got to keep it so I can read. So there's our text this morning in Philippians. Paul's assurance is based, I'm gonna, I want to break this down for everybody, what we just read. <clears throat> Paul's assurance is based on the prayers of the Philippian believers and the help from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says that. Help carries the meaning of uh, support or provision, and Paul knew full well that he would need the provision from the Spirit along with the prayers because it would take courage to face death with the right attitude, not shying away right from your beliefs, not shrinking away from your principles. He didn't want to do anything dishonorable in the face of death. It was a concern for him. So Paul is speaking here of deliverance, and this deliverance is important in both living and in his death. His concern was not so much about what would happen to him. Let's clear that real quick. That's not what his concern was, what would happen. It was about his testimony, whether it be in his life or the testimony he would leave behind in his death. But a very interesting thing here, Paul had what we call an eager expectation. This appears twice in the New Testament. It's translated from a very unique word. It describes the straining of one's neck in order to catch a glimpse of what's up ahead. We've done that where we strain to see what's up ahead. It's an eager expectation. But folks, it's not mere expectation. It's an intensely desired expectation with the idea that you have full confidence that it will happen, right? You have high confidence of its fulfillment. So deliverance in life would allow him to continue preaching. That's true. However, deliverance in death would also advance the cause of Christ. Paul had this hope. He had this eager expectation that he would not be ashamed in his death, which could be a possibility. We know not it didn't happen yet. That's next. There's another tent where he's in prison where he is martyred. This one we know, but he doesn't know. It could be a very good possibility that Paul will lose his life during this prison sentence. We just don't know. But regardless of his living, that is released from prison, or his dying, his release from this earthly life, Paul wanted to honor or magnify Christ in his body, in life or death. Can we, as mere humans, can we really magnify Jesus, though? I kept thinking about this, and I I love telescopes. I've talked about this before. Telescopes are so cool. A scope of any nature is fun. But a telescope brings distant things closer, the stars, the planets, the moon. 
We all realize that these objects are much larger than a telescope, yet we look through the telescope with earthly eyes, right, to bring those things closer because the uh, telescope magnifies them, bringing them closer. Our body should be like that of a telescope. That is bringing Jesus closer to people. Our lives, our circumstances, our ups, our downs, they should reveal to the unbeliever Christ in our lives. They should reveal to the unbeliever a magnified Christ in our life. And this is what Paul wanted to do. He wanted to honor and magnify Jesus in either his life where he would continue to proclaim the gospel like he has been doing, or in his dying, his death as a martyr. Come what may, the purpose which Paul had most at heart would be secured and the name of the Jesus would be honored, which is what he wanted. We're about to read a profound verse. It's 12 simple words. Profound verse. This verse is printed on, on journals, on Bible cases. I've seen it on bumper stickers and T-shirts. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, Paul unpacks all these things building up to for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And we're going to talk about those two things. For to me, to live is Christ. Paul's aim was to glorify Jesus. We talked about him being single-minded. He was single-minded in his purpose because he was completely devoted to him. Paul had no thought of life apart from Jesus. You couldn't talk to Paul or mention Paul or have any kind of conversation without Jesus being involved. It was the object for which he lived. He lived in Christ and he lived for Christ. Uh, there's a verse, Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ defined the meaning of life for Paul. He, it defined his life. So to live for Christ or to live in Christ is what Paul was all about. But there's another part to this. To die is gain. Now this is the act of dying, folks, not the state of death as the world perceives it. Paul is stating that this gain is a profit to him. It's an advantage for him. But Paul, how can this be dying? How can this be gain or advantage? Well, he's freed from sin. He's freed from doubt. He's freed from his temptations. Um, he's freed from his enemies. Wow, Paul had some enemies. He's freed from suffering, and I'll say it, he's even freed from death. There is a great song out there. It's not one of my favorites, but it's a great song by Mercy Me called I Can Only Imagine. We sing it here quite a few times. It's won many awards. In our culture, it's one of the hits on the other side of the fence with unbelievers, and it's called I Can Only Imagine. So if you will for a second, I want your God-given ability to use your imaginations to run wild. I'd like to paint a picture as I use my imagination. Let's try to figure out why this is gain. I do not know the logistics of entering heaven. I don't know if we're walking towards it and we enter. I don't know if we just open our eyes and we're there. But let's just say, poof, I'm in heaven. I open my eyes. <clears throat> First off, I'm a little overwhelmed. You have to understand and go with me, use your imaginations here. 
I, I can't understand these colors. These colors are vibrant. I've, my eyes have never taken anything in like this. I'm overwhelmed just by my, and I, my eyes can't even take it all in, right? And then the smells. I've never, I've never smelled anything like this. So what is this place? What, what's happening here? And then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, all these people come to me, and I recognize them. They're family. People that could have passed six months ago, people that could have passed 50 years ago, 100 years ago, I know them, and they're coming up and hugging me, loving me, embracing me. They're welcoming me to this heaven. And I'm like, what's going on here? I'm trying to ask, what's this and what's that? And they're like, no, welcome. You're not going to believe it. You're going to be in awe of what you're going to get to do here and what you're going to see. You have no idea what's in store for you, but welcome. And then even more people show up, my friends that have passed on. Here they are. They come. They found out I entered heaven. They come to welcome me. Dude, you're going to love this place. Man, we love you so much. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's amazing. But I'm still shaking a little bit in the knees because I don't understand the brilliance of where I'm at. And just like the Red Sea, the people start to part, right? And this figure's approaching me. And I start to shake a little more because I realize, oh my goodness, I have just locked eyes with the creator of the universe. The creator of the universe, the creator of my being is walking towards me and we have locked eyes. Now I'm shaking and I realize I can't stand anymore. So I fall to the ground, but he grabs me just like he grabbed Peter before he fell in the water. He grabs me and tells me how much he loves me. And I'm looking into the eyes, I'm looking at the physical features of the one who died for me and saved me so that I could be in his presence right now. And he's having to hold me up because I can't stand and guess what, I can't talk. I can't even utter a word. There's so many things I wanna say, but I'm just too in awe, I'm overwhelmed. Can you imagine that? Freed from everything, looking in the eyes of your Savior, surrounded by loved ones, trying to just comprehend Heaven, with our finite brains, by the way, we're never going to fathom what heaven's truly about. It is, all we can use is our imaginations because it goes beyond our imaginations. Now, I'm going to ask you, does that sound like gain? For me, that sounds like gain. See, let me ask you this. If there was a prisoner who had served a long prison sentence and found out he was getting released, do you think he'd dread the hour when he was released to be a free man? Mm -mm. What about cultural? Let's go current event. What if there was someone stuck overseas in another country because there's a travel ban for COVID-19? Do you think they're going to dread the hour when they're allowed to return to their families? Absolutely not. So then why would a Christian dread the hour which will bring them to this kind of everlasting and eternal joy? We can't fathom what's in store. We can't fathom the joy that's going to be expressed when we enter heaven. But Paul, that's all he thought about. It's all he thought about. This is what Paul meant when he said to die is gain because he is gaining everything. For Paul, death was not a frightening event. It just simply meant to depart. He was departing. Now, depart was used by soldiers. It was a word used by soldiers, meaning to take down your tent and move on. Our bodies are a tent. At our departure, we take down the tent. Everybody, I want you to turn with me right now to 2 Corinthians. Just a couple books over. 2 Corinthians. Let's go to chapter 5. Second Corinthians 5. I want to start in verse 1. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, 
we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For this tent, excuse me, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is what Paul's talking about. This is exactly, this supports our scripture today. This is what he's talking about when he says life or death. <clears throat> it's profound when you think about it. Because for me, it's a win-win situation. I get life, and then I'm gaining death. A lot of people can't see it. The world can't see it that way. That's the end. That's why the world is everything to them. Everything in the world is precious to them because they don't understand what's far greater. Well, I don't know if you noticed this when I read the text earlier in Philippians, but the apostle seems kind of frustrated. Paul's frustrated here. Man, what do I do? It's like he's weighing the pros, right? He's weighing the pros to both life and death. Living would mean fruitful labor. The Bible doesn't say labor or hard labor. The Bible says fruitful labor. I think that's important to remember. God would use Paul and bless his ministry as he has always done in the past. The work Paul would continue would be very beneficial to others. However, he was distressed over this thinking. The Bible says he was hard-pressed and knowing what to do. How? Which one brings the most glory to God? He tells us his personal desire, though, doesn't he? He tells us. He says, listen, my desire is to depart, which is far better, far better than life. That's how Paul sees it. Paul could see that what was on the other side was not only far better, but it had greater value than anything that was on this side. See, Jesus destroyed death. So dying was just a passageway to another stage of God's redemptive plan. Have you ever thought about death like that? Because for some, it's very final, right? I'm going to mourn for a year. You don't know how much this person meant to me, and I get it. I get feeling lost. I'm not dismissing that at all. But for a Christian believer, you have to understand it is another step in God's redemptive plan for you. It's not an end. It's the beginning of forever. So it's just a passageway. Death has no victory. Death has no sting. We have that in Scripture. Jesus defeated death, didn't he? So for Paul, dying was gain, but he also said that for him to remain, right, in the flesh, that is living, was more necessary. We know what he wants, but he's saying, hey, I believe God's going to keep me here. 
I think I'm going to go on living. He said for him to remain in the flesh, that living would be more necessary. Paul factors in the needs of the Philippians. We have the letter addressed to them. He's factoring in their needs, and the scale seems to tilt towards remaining in the flesh. So Paul is placing his friend's needs over his own desires. And there's two great commandments that I just, when I was doing this study, there was two great commandments that just screamed out at me. You guys know them. In Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, it says, and he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Paul lived this. Guys, Christ was everything. He lived with all the power he had in him for Christ. Soul, mind, heart. A heart, I mean, his heart beat for God. He lived out this verse. And then it goes on to say, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We see this in Paul's life. Paul put others before himself. He's putting the Philippian believers right now before himself. He said it's more necessary to stay here for you. Paul was living out these verses as he wrestled with these two conflicting desires. Paul knows that it's more necessary for him to remain because he realizes Christ will choose for him to stay. The Bible says right here, I will continue with you all for the progress and joy in the faith. Now we are back to that progress. Remember last week we talked about the furthering of the gospel, the advancement of the gospel. We're talking about progress again, right? But the progress is for the church in Philippi. It's for their faith that the gospel is going to be advanced. He also states that when the Philippian believers see him, that they will have more reason to boast in Christ. Now Paul's not saying, hey, when you see me, <laughs> jump for joy, because I'm all that. He's not saying that in any means. What Paul is saying is when you see me, you're going to realize Fruitful labor is active. Prayers have been answered. I'm going to encourage you as you're going to encourage me. It's a joyful reunion which becomes fuel for the fire. The Bible says ample cause, but I want you to think when they see Paul, it's fuel for the fire so that they bring more glory to Christ Jesus when he comes back to Philippi. But he says something. He says, listen, fruitful labor, progress, I'm staying. But this is, this is how I want to find you. He's talking now about the manner of life. He's talking about our citizenship in a sense. The Bible says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. We just read that in Philippians. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Literally translated, that is for them to behave as citizens worthy. <clears throat> this would have been very significant to the people in Rome. I mean, in Philippi, excuse me. Because most of them were Roman citizens. And you, it just wasn't you were born in a Roman province to be a Roman citizen. To be a Roman citizen was to be Roman. Roman ways, Roman thinking, Roman culture, Roman allegiances. You know, it wasn't just about where you lived. This was, this citizenship brought honor. It brought privilege. Roman citizenship offered many things. So he's talking about citizenship to this group of people. <clears throat> and we know that the citizenship that Paul's referring to, because we find it in chapter 3, verse 20, is citizenship in heaven. We are all citizens in a heavenly way. What does this mean, though? 
Well, Paul wants them, he's directing them, to focus on a higher citizenship, a higher identity, to focus on a higher calling that is much higher in standard for their conduct and their allegiance. It's higher. It's greater. Why, Paul, why are you emphasizing the worth of the gospel and the worth of citizenship so much? Well, we find out that he says, listen, whether I come back and see you or hear about you, this is what I want to know, that you are standing together firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, fighting side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is what he tells them. Hey, you're going to see me, and I know we're going to rejoice together, but this is how I want to find you. I had a, we have a delivery driver that often comes to the house. <laughs> I hate to admit that, but we do. And he's come to really love our dogs. So he comes through the back door and hands us our food, and he plays with our dogs. Cool, I have no problem with that. And uh, the other day, he had mentioned God in a sentence, which he had never done before. So I felt like that was a door I was allowed to walk through. So I'm standing in the doorway. He's petting the dogs, and he mentions God. And what's the easiest thing to say somebody to start a conversation? I said, well, it is great to meet a fellow believer, another soldier. What church do you go to? Isn't that the easiest thing to say to start a conversation? You're not being pushy. You're not being nosy. What church do you go to, brother? I'm just curious. I didn't tell him I was a pastor yet. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. I don't go to church. I don't care for church people. <laughs> and I got it. I got where he's coming from. I said, okay, so you've had church hurt. There are people that have, are keeping you from God or that you're allowing to keep you from God. I said, brother, i got to ask. You, you claim to be a believer, and God bless you. Praise God. But i got to ask, how are you being fed, man? And we're not talking physically. This is a big dude. We don't want to talk physically. I said, how are you being fed? Because I asked him some questions. I couldn't stop there. So I asked him some questions. And he says, oh, I'll read my Bible on my own. I said, oh, man, no, 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 no. That's not enough, buddy. That's not enough. You can't walk through this life by yourself. Now, I didn't have this definition yet, but what I said, don't you want brothers and sisters that'll stand with you and that'll pray for you as you pray for them, that'll love you as you love them? Don't you want to fellowship with people with the same common interests that you have? Do, do, do you really enjoy being alone in this? I said, I, I couldn't stand that. Don't you want to be fed? I said, I got to ask again, man, how are you being fed? Because I asked him some questions, and he came back with me with the Bible says, and he was wrong. I told him, I said, listen, I'm going to be as gentle as I can here, but firm. That's absolutely not true. I had to correct him many things. I said, brother, this is why you need to be somewhere where people will love on you and you can be fed properly. Left to your own devices right now, you're going to continue to stray. Remember last week when I said when you shoot that azimuth for the compass? If you're off a couple inches, it may not be a big deal, but the more you travel, the greater distance. This man couldn't have been farther from God in our conversation. I understand he loved him. Don't get me wrong. I understand he desired a relationship with him. But he was off track. So I invited him to our church. I said, we'll fix everything. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But I said, you need, I, I'm a pastor at Grace Fellowship. I would love for you. My family would love for you to come. Be our guest. I want you to come to our church house. We invited him. He didn't come. He didn't come. This was a while back. But the invitation was there. What I'm getting at is this man was doing it on his own. And what did Paul say? You got to strive together side by side. See, this is what Paul wants to hear about the church in Philippi. Guess what? This is what I and what you should want to hear about the church at Grace Fellowship in Reedsville. 
that we are straining for that. Straining for that, excuse me. So I want to tell you this. Um, if you ever ask me my definition of church, or if I ever have the chance to be a witness to somebody else to explain what church is, this is my definition. I'm going to say, you know what, brother? Grace Fellowship is believers that stand firm together in one spirit with one mind. We fight with each other side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's who Grace Fellowship is. Come, come join us. That's exactly what I'm going to say. That is my new definition. I was real close in what I was saying, but this is really precise. It's biblical, and it's to the point, and I love it. And this is what church, the church of Philippi was to be when Paul returned. But he talks about these opponents. We live in America. We've been pretty blessed. We don't have much opposition. I'm not saying it won't come. I don't know if it's government. I don't know if it's an outside country. I don't know if it's in, in, inside the borders, certain thing. But persecution is going to come at some point. There will be opposition. And maybe you're facing it on a lower scale at work or at school or with family. But there is no reason for the Philippian believers to be frightened of those who oppose Paul. I mean, excuse me, oppose, uh, uh, oppose them. That is the church in Philippi. Because Paul wants them to respond to persecution in fearlessness. He says sending this will send a clear signal to their opponents. If you are responding in fearlessness, this will send a clear signal to their opponents that God is our salvation and God is their destruction. See, the Philippians maintain, they maintain this courage. At some point, these opponents are going to realize that this remarkable strength, this remarkable strength that this church is exhibiting can only come from God. Therefore, anybody, and anyone who continues to oppose God's people is going to face destruction. It says it right here in Philippians. Now, Paul's not speaking to those who are afflicting him in 15 through 18, verses 15 through 18 that we read last week. Those seem to be Christians that were preaching a correct gospel, trying to hurt Paul, but that was in another place. That was in Rome. We're talking about opposing forces in Philippi, people that may oppose or they're opposing at the time. The point is, God's sustaining grace assures believers of their own salvation. And that is from God. It says it right here. So Paul's going to unpack a little bit what from God means. If you look at verse 27 and verses 28, you see everything that is from God. And now we're speaking of faith and persecution from God. Paul writes that we have been granted not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul is teaching us both, right? He's teaching, excuse me, Paul is teaching us that both suffering and faith, both suffering and faith come from God. And suffering for the sake of Jesus becomes a privilege for us. He is reminding us that suffering is a sign that we belong to Christ, Paul presents himself as an example, one who is now faced with conflict in Rome, right? It was the same type of conflict that he faced in Philippi, and now he's facing it in Rome. And he's using himself as an example here at the bottom of this text for them to understand. It seems like faith and suffering for a Christian becomes a package deal. A package deal. Christ's suffering for you, you understand his suffering. You understand what he did. Therefore, we should willingly embrace, willingly embrace suffering for him. What that looks like, I don't know. I don't know all the nooks and crannies of your life. But suffering for him, we should be willing 
because he suffered for us. And that leads us to one of the greatest persecution stories, excuse me, the greatest persecution story ever told, the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, when we talk about persecution, this story is put on display over and over again. Persecutors, excuse me, persecutors attempted to kill Jesus, didn't they? They thought they did. Well, persecutors are going to try to kill the faith of a believer. But just like Jesus, faith rises, my friends. God's power, His power preserves our faith. The very power that was involved in the resurrection is the very power behind the faith that you and I pursue daily. The power of the resurrection is very powerful. It brings us to our faith, and it preserves our faith. We have to remember that he who began a good work in you, right? He who began a good work in us, he's going to see that to completion. He's going to see that to completion. There's one thing we have to remember, though. I've been waiting to get to this line. There's one thing we've got to remember. There's nothing, and there's no one, that can separate a believer from God's almighty grip. No matter what the opponents are threatening or doing, you're not going to be separated from his grip. In life and in death, you are not separated from his grip. In fact, the opponents, those who oppose God, they're actually opposing him and fighting him, not us. And they're the ones that should be frightened because they are in opposition to God. Spoiler alert, they lose. So here Paul wants to encourage the Philippian believers both in their faith and in their suffering when he comes to find them as a church that's striving side by side together. So let me review, let me recap, because I know I've given you a lot of things today. There's no, uh, there is no believer that when he or she comes to die will ever regret living in and living for Christ. It won't happen. There will be many who regret this not being their aim and purpose, when they come to realize what's going on. But for a believer, that's not going to happen. See, Paul in his deliverance wants us to honor and magnify Christ, whether it be in his life or in his death. For Paul, life is Christ. He defines him. And death, well, we know that dying is far greater. It's far better. This is what he desires. But through his ministry and his sufferings and his joy, even in death, Paul wants Christ to appear larger and more glorious. He wants to magnify the Lord. While Paul is wrestling with these options of whether he lives or whether he dies, he comes and finds that others' sake, the others that need him more, for their sake, I will remain in the flesh. Paul states that whether he sees his friends in Philippi or just hears about them, he wants their manner of life to be worthy of the gospel. He wants them to behave as heavenly citizens. What does that citizenship consist of? It consists of standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel. And this is done together, side by side. This is church. So let's talk. There's a football team, let's say. They're on the field, and the quarterback calls the players to a huddle. And he says, here's, here's our play. And he calls out the play. And every single member of that team goes to their position. No talking. They go to their position ready to execute. See, they have the same aim. They have the same goal and purpose. We have to further that ball. We have to advance that ball. We need to progress farther down the field. 
We know what the play is. Let's all work together to advance, right? All different positions, but we're going to advance forward. In unity, this team works together to advance that ball. At the same time, you could have a team where the quarterback calls the play, and you could have disorder. You know, receivers are running to the opponent's end zone, running backs to the sidelines, your linemen lay down. You have disorder. Unfortunately, our churches are very much like that. We can have that awesome order where our purposes are driven, right? And we can have disorder. And Paul's saying, this is what I want for you, Philippi. This is what I want your church to look like. And this is what I'm saying to you guys, Grace Fellowship. This is what I want our church to look like. Exactly what Paul's calling for. See, corporately, and this is what I was trying to explain to that delivery driver. Corporately, we have got to come together. We have to refuel. We have to be fed. We have to reboot. So that when we go out in the world independently, we are able to stand. Corporately, we should be magnifying the God, magnifying our Lord and Savior in this church. When we're out on our own, we should also be that wonderful lens that people can look through and see Christ magnified. So corporately and individually, we have got to stand together. I asked you two questions. Are you magnifying the Lord and Savior? Are you a lens that people can look through and see Jesus in a larger, more glorious way? I asked you that in the beginning. You know, dying, we understand dying is far better. It's gain. We understand what dying is going to look like. But, and you know it's inevitable, unless God comes back for us, we can all agree that natural processes are going to take us to that next step. It's inevitable. But now it's not. We're living. So if we're living, it seems necessary for us to live for Christ and live in Christ. Because what's that awesome verse? And I want these 12 words to rattle around your head. By the way, you probably could have memorized this verse already in church when you leave these doors today. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let that rattle in your brains. Think about it. So you can concentrate on that verse. In life or death, am I magnifying the Lord in my life? Am I, am I a lens that people can look through and go, my goodness, look at Christ. They bring a distant Christ closer to that lens. You can be that. You can magnify God in your life where another person, an unbeliever, can say, my goodness, he loves Christ. He, that man is devoted to this Lord. <clears throat> it's my hope and my prayer that when you answer this question, you can say, absolutely, I'm magnifying God in my life. And you can even tell yourself how you're doing it. If not, man, get back to Christian 101. We got to get back to basics. We need to rebuild ourselves. Paul said he wanted his people to have ample cause. I'm telling you, I want you to have ample cause for the joy in your life where you become this conduit, this lens that magnifies God in a large, glorious way where people take notice. That's my prayer for you guys. In fact, let's go ahead and close in prayer on that. Heavenly Father, you, you are our God. Each and every one of us are just, we're waiting for the day where we actually get to stand before you and look into your eyes and see you. Just stand and see you. I know, Father, we probably won't be able to stand. We probably won't be able to speak. But to see you and embrace you, we know that dying is far greater. But you've given us also this wonderful life. And we know in this life, because of what our life's going to be, that far greater life, we have to live for you. Like Galatians said, we have to live for you. You live in us. 
we have to put on Christ. We thank you that we are part of your kingdom, that we are part of your family, that we are a child of love. We're grateful. We can't even put the words together to tell you how grateful and thankful we are, Lord, but you can search our hearts and see that. Lord, my prayer today is that as we leave this building, we remember those words, that wonderful verse, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's a win-win for a Christian believer. Father, we know that you have us living right now and that you call us to a higher standard of conduct. You call us to a higher citizenship. Father, it's a citizenship in heaven and we get it. We are citizens of that. So we have got to live a life worthy of the gospel. We pray for that first, Father, that you bring us to a place where we see that we need to live a life worthy of the gospel. And then, Father, let us be, let us amplify you. Let us magnify you. Let us exalt you in our lives so that people can see Christ in us. But on a grander scale, not us, not our names, not what we do. Let them see you, Father. That's our prayer for today. Lord, we just love you. We thank you so much for everything that you've done and that you continue to do for us, which is all the more reason for us to live in Christ and for Christ. Father, I just ask you to be with each believer today as they leave this building. Think of that verse, Lord. Think about their own individual life. Are they magnifying you? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.